question. And so this morning, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And we are going to be reading the letter to the church in Pergamum. So if you don't have your Bible with you and you'd like a hard copy of the text, you should be able to find one under a seat around you. Uh, and when you get there to Revelation 2, 12 through 17, would you please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word? Okay, verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who thought Balak to who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, okay, out of the bag, I'll let you know, I got more dental work done, okay? And so, um, it's, it's a horrible story, okay? Uh, basically, I had uh, a kind man mess up my dentist work the first time, so I had to go back uh, to an oral surgeon this week and get it done. I thought I was going to be feeling much better and, you know, not be still numb and sound weird. So, I apologize. If you don't understand me, everyone just say amen really loud, and, and we'll move on to the next topic, okay? Uh, but it's really good to be here. Uh, I really am enjoying the series, enjoying uh, this portion of the book of Revelation to these seven churches in Asia. Um, there, there's lots of good wisdom here for the church, and um, there's lots of intense things here for the church as well. Uh, I, I love looking directly at the words of Jesus, and um, he does not hold back punches. And, and so today we're going to look at what he says to the church at Pergamum and ask the question, what can we um, take from this. Now, there's really a pattern here. If you start to notice every week, there's a pattern of how Jesus approaches each church. And it goes something like this. Uh, there's three major components. The first is, um, and there's some variation within this, but by and large, it's kind of the order. The first thing is, is that Christ will say something about himself. Okay. And so kind of asking the question, what does Christ say that he is to the church? Kind of the first question he goes through. And so uh, what he's doing, and uh, I was talking with Nate Brown about this last week. He was kind of pointing this out. It's really cool. But if you look at Revelation 1, the, the first portion of text that court went over in this series, uh, and John describes him seeing Christ and what he saw about Christ, uh, this character, and basically kind of goes through all these attributes. And, and what Christ does to each church, there's seven attributes, and Christ kind of comes in and he'll mention one attribute that John saw in Revelation 1, and then he'll talk about. So Christ is kind of laying before us who he is. He's telling the church a, a facet about who he is that gives him authority. Obviously, being Christ, he has all authority, uh, but to particularly talk about what he's talking about. The second thing that happens is Christ will say something to the church. This is usually in the form of either uh, a commendation to say you're doing something right or 
a correction to say you're doing something wrong. This is how you need to, to fix it. Uh, but he's gonna, nonetheless, he's going to give the church some things that they're doing good or bad. There's a few churches that don't get anything explicitly bad mentioned, which is really awesome. Uh, but uh, most get something bad said about them like today. And then lastly, Christ will give a promise. Now, sometimes this is in the form of a threat. Uh, so it's not always like a, a pleasant promise. It's a threat that if you don't repent, I'm going to come and do something. Uh, and then there's also a promise about the one uh, who conquers and stays faithful to Christ, what will happen for them. And so this is kind of what we're looking in the text, okay? And so my points are basically going to be those questions. What does Christ say about himself to the church? What does he tell the church? And what does Christ promise the church? That's what I want to look at today in this portion of Scripture uh, in Revelation 2 here. So um, I want to pray. We'll pray together. Ask God because uh, it's a good reminder, each one in here, Christ says, uh, and to those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. And I just want to pray for ears to hear what Christ says to his church this morning. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time uh, on a Sunday morning uh, to worship you through opening up these scriptures and seeing what it is you have for us. And so God, our prayer this morning is give us ears to hear what you say to your church. God, we don't want to be dull of hearing. We don't want to be blind. We don't want to think there's no correction for us to hear when there clearly is. And God, we also don't want to miss the encouraging promises you give for us in your word. God, it is your promises that sustain us through this life with joy and faith, even in the hard times. So Holy Spirit, please give us ears to hear whether we've always had ears to hear the word or whether we've never have, I pray this morning all of us under the sound of my voice would hear your word and be changed forever. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we're just gonna kind of walk through verse by verse and kind of go through what he's saying to Pergamum. So let's look at verse 12 together and we'll kind of start to answer the first question here. Um, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So the first question um, who does Christ say that he is to the church? And so Christ gives this statement about himself. He is the one who has the two-edged sword, okay? So what does it mean to be the one, him who has the sharp two-edged sword? So that should sound familiar to you if you've read the Bible through. Uh, a few portions of scripture I wanna go to. One is in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Um, so the writer of Hebrews is discussing that um, there's been this Sabbath rest given by God to his people and the people of Israel who were in the wilderness for 40 years, they failed to enter God's rest through disobedience. And then he gives this encouragement to them after he says, we should not fail to enter the rest. He says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It comes into us and it searches us and it assesses us. And no one, absolutely no one can hide from that sharp two-edged sword. It is so sharp, it could split between the very spirit and soul, between, right, between bone and marrow, right, which are one. And so no one, no one can clothe themselves from the word of God. Everyone is naked. Everyone is exposed. Everyone will be judged by the word through and through, okay? And so this sharp two-edged sword represents the word of God, Christ being the very word made flesh, right? 
And so Christ first is projecting himself that way. But another reference we get from a sharp sword coming out of the mouth of Christ is in Revelation 19. I'm just going to read verses 15 through 16, but this is where Christ comes in on a white horse. His robe is dipped in blood. He's got King of Kings, the Lord of Lords tattooed on his thigh, and he's coming to end all things, right? He's coming to judge the earth in truthfulness. And it says this about him, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is a reference to Christ as the final judge. So here's what I think Christ is giving a picture of. Now, there's lots of things we can go to. There's more texts we could go to. But I think in general, what, what Christ is communicating to the church is that he is the word of God, the final judge, the one who will purify his church, that will make all things new and that will not be trifled with, okay? This is the, the, the picture of Christ. He's not giving this um, necessarily pleasant and uh, uh, maybe, um, I don't know, what's it? it's an intimidating picture of Christ is what I'm getting at, right? Christ is, is making himself intimidating because he is, right? There is a healthy fear of Christ that we should have and Christ is projecting this about himself. So the great judge of all the earth, he will come with his two-edged sword. He will judge the earth. He will judge the nations with this sword. He is the very word of God. The word of God will be the final word. The one who is speaking to the church is the word made flesh. He is powerful and we cannot hide from him and he has something to say and we should listen, amen? This is what Christ is saying about himself. He's saying, I have the authority to be speaking right now, okay? Uh, Christ is writing to the church of Pergamum and they should perk up to listen to him because he's got some serious things to say to them, both good and bad. So this is Christ. Um, what does Christ say to the church? Now he's gonna give a little bit of uh, commendation and a little bit of condemnation or correction here to the church. And so we're gonna go through those kind of one at a time. So let's read verse um, really kind of 13 through 15 together and we'll kind of break it down and talk about it. Here's what he says in verse 13 through 15. I, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And let's stop there for a second, okay? Let's see what Jesus is saying. There's a lot of things in here he's got to say to them. We've got to talk about a few stories. But first he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I love those words of Christ. Christ is saying, look, I know where you live. Okay, I know where you dwell. I know the struggles that you are facing. I know the hardship that you are facing. For Christ to say that you live where Satan's throne is, I mean, that's pretty intense, right? And so Christ is saying, look, I, I know where you live. I know what's going on. I love Christ here because I think Christ is very sympathetic to what's going on. He's not gonna excuse their action for what they're doing wrong. That's clear. But he's saying, look, I, I know you. I, I know where you live. I know where you are. It's not an accident. I always go through this every year in Houston. I say, look, God knows where I live. He knows I live here for some reason, right? When it gets really hot in August, I say, God knows, right? But even more serious to these people, he's saying, I, I know what's going on. Look, half of our struggle when we suffer is that we don't hear these words from Christ, that he knows, right? This is why it says Christ is a sympathetic high priest. He has lived a life in the flesh, Apart from sinning, he has experienced everything that we experience, all the sufferings of this life, all, all these struggles. And, and Christ made us, he knows us. 
we would do much better in suffering if we would dwell on this, that, that, that Christ knows where you are. He says, I know where you are, where Satan's throne is. Now, I want to talk about that where Satan's throne is. We've got to talk a little bit about Pergamum because it was a pretty wily city, if you will. But he says where Satan's throne is. Now, there's, there's really two theories about this. A lot of people will say, okay, well, they had this big temple there. They, they were kind of, this city was built into a large mountain. On top of the mountain, they had this temple to Zeus. And in this temple, there was a large throne. And so this is clearly a reference to the, the temple of Zeus and Zeus kind of being the satanic thing. And um, I'm not saying that's necessarily an invalid theory, but I think probably mainly what is being said here is that um, Satan has set up shop here in Pergamum and he's doing some pretty rowdy things here, okay? Uh, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He definitely has demons all over the place, but it seems like Satan has take a particular, taken a particular interest in Pergamum at this time through persecuting the church and bringing idolatrous worship that there's just a lot going on here, okay? So let's talk a little bit about Pergamum. Um, this is a large city very intellectual, had massive libraries. Uh, it was second only to Alexandria in this. It was famous for its pagan worship. They had the big temple of Zeus that was pretty famous in the ancient world. They uh, actually had temples for, for living emperors like Caesar and Trajan and some others. Um, and they had all kinds of temples to God set up here. They gloried in their intellectual prowess um, and, and they, they loved to talk about these things. There was tons of sexual morality of how they would worship these pagan gods just like the rest of the ancient world. There's a lot of stuff going on here that's pretty intense in Pergamum. Uh, Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he sums up their values and what they worship to say. They said they worship four major things. It was, it was power, intellect, sexuality, and health. These are like their four major things that they worship, which sounds a lot like America if you think about it and really a lot of the Western world. But um, Pergamum, on top of all of this, uh, was also a place that was experiencing uh, some intense persecution for the Christian faith, okay? So the, to, to worship the emperors and all of these things was to take part in society. And so for Christians to not take part in those things was to reject society, to reject what was valued in society and, and to basically rebel against that, right? And so there was heavy persecution in light of that. He mentions Antipas, the faithful witness. This is where the, the, the word uh, martyr really comes into being, right, in the Greek word for witness being um, martyr. And so um, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. And Jesus says, look, I know where you dwell. And he's encouraging them, right? Like they're being faithful. We're about to get into this in a second, but they're being faithful where they're at. And I love this about Pergamum because Pergamum was a tough place to be a church. It was a tough place to be a Christian. It was a tough place to live. I mean, can we just be honest for a second? Have any of you thought in the past couple of years with all the politics and everything going on in our country, like, man, I'd rather just live in Norway. Has anyone thought about that, right? Like, it'd be much better just to get out and move, get somewhere else where it's not as crazy. And I hate to break it to you, pretty much the whole world's crazy. It's always gonna be that way. So you're not really gonna escape, okay? But you thought about that, right? You know who didn't think about that? Well, I'm sure maybe they thought about it, but you know who's not leaving is the people in Pergamum. They're being killed and they're still there to be faithful. I love this about them. We need churches in hard places. Well, we shouldn't think about church planting and simply as, well, what's gonna be safest for my kids? I'm not saying we shouldn't think about what's safe for your kids. I'm just saying that, that Pergamum had this grit about them. It was like, this is a hard place to have a church, but, but 
They, they were willing and ready to suffer for Christ, right? It was a joy for them. It's an awesome thing. So let's talk about the commendation. What does he say as a positive to them? He says this. He says, you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith. Even though you live where Satan's throne is, you held fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. What beautiful words from Christ to be said about somebody. Now, what does it mean to hold fast to his name and to not deny his faith? I wrote two major things that I think might help sum this up. The first thing is to be unashamedly associated with Christ, okay? To be not ashamed to be associated with the name. If you want an opposite to kind of get a picture of this is Peter right before the crucifixion, right? When Christ is arrested, what happens is they keep asking Peter, no, no, you were with him, weren't you? And he says, no, no, I was not with him, right? Because he was afraid of what might happen to him because he saw what was happening to Christ, right? But to be unashamedly associated with someone in their name, okay, is to be associated with them. It's to be a part of them. It's to take part in Christ. And the church at Pergamum was not afraid, right? Like, do you remember Jesus' words where he says, you know, um, those who deny me before people, I'll deny you before my father, right? Christ is looking for people that will not be ashamed of his name. And these people in Pergamum, they were not ashamed of his name. They were willing, even in the days where Antipas was murdered for the sake of what he believed to be faithful unto death. They were willing to take on the badge of honor to be with Christ. It's not an honor to the world, but it's an honor to be with Christ and they felt that way. And so they were, they were not ashamed of the gospel. They were not ashamed of Christ. They were willing and ready to be associated with him though they could be looked, out, uh, looked at as outcasts in society and though they could be looked at as people to be slaughtered. Um, the other thing is that, uh, I put this, the other thing it means is to really cling to him in truthful obedience, okay? Uh, maybe I could say it this way. Uh, they were serious about following Christ and obeying his commands. Holiness mattered to the church at Pergamum, okay? To be faithful, to not deny the faith, meant even in the midst of hardship, they were willing to not only be associated with his name, but to walk in obedience, right? Like, like in a lot of these instances of Pergamum, it probably would have been easier to just make little compromises, right? I say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, as a Christian, you know, this is kind of a gray area. I don't really care. It's okay. You do this, or maybe we could do this. No. Pergamum said, not a chance. Okay, they were going to cling to Christ in truthful, faithful obedience. Now, there's obviously some disobedience, and we'll get to that. But nonetheless, uh, even unto death, Jesus looked at him and saying, you've been faithful in all things to me. Um, you, you've, you've, been, you've clung to my name. You've not been ashamed. You've been tough. You've been strong by the power of the Spirit. You've had some grit there in Pergamum where it's hard to be a Christian, and yet you've been faithful in that way. And this I praise in you, okay? And he's saying, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness gives him really the same title that kind of calls himself. And so this faithful witness Antipas, even in those days, they were faithful when he was slaughtered. But now the words of Christ that are hard. He says, but I have a few things against you. Uh, Court mentioned this, uh, I think last week or the week before, but those are tough things to hear from Christ, Right? for him to look at the church and say, look, I, I got a few things against you. For Christ to be against you, you know, we, we love quoting, which we should, right? If Christ is for us, who could be against us, right? Uh, that's awesome. But, but then try reversing that. If Christ is against you, who could be for you? Absolutely nobody, right? So if Christ has some things, now he's not against the church. He's gonna clearly mention this, but for Christ to say, I have this against you, this should perk your ears. This should be taken seriously, right? He's got some things to say. He says, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
Okay, and he goes on to talk about a little bit what happened to Balaam. Now, if you read Numbers roughly 23 through 31, you'll get a, a good picture of what happened in the story of Balaam. But I kind of want to sum it up for you uh, quickly for the sake of time. But, but what happened here, uh, and then we'll read a text in Numbers to kind of explain it. But basically, Balaam was the guy, if you guys remember the story where Balak is this king and he sees the people of Israel camping in the wilderness and he's kind of intimidated by them. And so he calls Balaam, who's a prophet of God, and says, I, I want you to curse the people. And Balaam said, well, I uh, can't do that unless God says to do it, right? I can only speak the words of God. And when you first see Balaam, you think, okay, this guy's actually, he's pretty awesome, right? He's a strong prophet. He's doing things right. Like he's not going to curse. He's not going to give a curse. And when God gives a blessing uh, and then uh, eventually he, Balak sends some guys to bring Balaam with them and Balaam starts to come and then God kind of gets mad because Balaam in his heart was being disobedient and God knows that. And so God sent an angel uh, of the Lord that stood in the way and, and on the way Balaam's donkey basically stops and Balaam, start, or Balaam starts kicking the donkey and hit the donkey and yell at the donkey and then God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey looks at him and says, what are you doing to me? You know, and he basically is like, look, I, I've served you faithfully. You've ridden on me all these years and you're going to treat me like this? When, when I, have I ever done anything wrong to you before, basically? <laughs> the guy's just like talking like it's normal. Balaam's just having a conversation. And then God opens his eyes and sees the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn, ready to kill Balaam. Okay? And so this should have scared Balaam to say, God is a serious person. I should be obedient, right? And then the story goes on where, you know, Balak says, okay, well, come to this mountain and curse them. And God doesn't let Balaam curse them. And come to this mountain and it goes on and on. But then what happens is in Numbers 25, after Balaam gives the last thing that he's not going to curse, he's only going to bless because God blessed them, is that the children of Israel go off into this rampage of sexual morality with the Moabite women. And they start at Peor, they start worshiping idols and doing all this idol worship and just completely disobedient to God and what he had said, right? They were not faithful. There's sexual and spiritual infidelity there with them. And then we read this in Numbers 31, 15 through 16. It says this, Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? So what happened, basically, they, they went to attack the Moabites and God said, kill everybody. Kill everybody. Women, children, everybody. And what happens is they go and kill all the men, but they bring the women, children, and plunder back. And then Moses is saying, did you let all the women live? Did you disobey God's character? Okay, and then he says this. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the instant of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. And there's 24,000 people of Israel that were killed because of this. And so what's happening here is Moses is giving us the true story, which is Balaam, though he could not curse them because God did not allow him because God was blessing them, went to Balak and basically convinced Balak, look, this is how you can actually get the people to stumble and kind of curse them anyway by getting them to disobey. And so Balak told the Moabite women to go over there and to seduce the men and, and, and everything follows, okay? And so what Christ is saying here to the church is he's saying you have people in your church that hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is a pretty intense accusation, right? And then he goes on to talk about the Nicolaitans. And we don't know too much historically about the Nicolaitans, but they were somewhat of syncretists, just like the situation at Balaam. So here's how I would sum it up for you. If I give a summary, okay? It was kind of the idea of this, that you can be faithful to God and still partake in these devious activities like idol worship and sexual morality that involved and all of those things, okay? So it was this syncretistic ideology that said, I can be a faithful Christian and do X, Y, Z right? 
which is clearly X, Y, Z is prohibited in the Bible, but I can still kind of do that. And so what's happening here in Pergamum, what Jesus has against them, what the correction is, is that they were putting up with people who held to these teachings. They were allowing it into the church. Yeah, you can be a Christian and still kind of do this. That's okay. It's kind of up to interpretation, right? It's not, uh, you know, as long as you're getting some things right, it's okay. There are people that were allowing this to happen in the church. And so what's the correction from Jesus? That they were allowing members of the church to take part in these vile, syncretistic practices of enjoying the folly of Pergamum while remaining an unopposed part of the church of God. Okay? So Jesus says he will not stand for this. Jesus made it clear uh, a few verses ago when he talked to the Ephesians that he hates the work of the Nicolaitans, right? That Christ hates these things and yet they were allowing it to be. So I want to mention this, okay? Because he's about to say, okay, now you need to repent. But he's not just telling those who were taking part uh, in the ideology of the Nicolaitans and Balaam to repent, but he tells the entire church to repent. So why does he do that? I got a few things for you I think that are important. One is that we are not only to called to thrive for holiness within ourselves, but we are also called to thrive for holiness within the church, okay? Holiness is a community project, okay? Wherever the church is not being holy, all must repent of the folly and, and, and must go. So, so here's how it kind of works. In Pergamum, what was happening is that these, these teachings were being taught, they were being allowed, all of the, the sin and vileness was going on and no one opposed them. No one had the guts. No one had the spiritual tenacity to say, this is not right. You must repent from this. If you don't repent, you will be kicked out of the church. This is clearly an indictment on the leadership of the church at Pergamum and the church at large. Now, this doesn't mean, and we'll get into this a little bit with some practical application. This doesn't mean that anytime someone sins that our gut reaction is, you know, you're out of the church, bro. You messed up. You got angry, you're goner, okay? Only perfect people here. It's not what's happening, but there was this consistent, vile practice of idol worship that was being allowed to exist within the church and was unopposed by the congregation, by the leaders. And Christ says, enough. The one with the two-edged sword says, repent. And so therefore, repent so he's talking to the entire church about this. There's a responsibility on the entire church to repent of what's going on. And it's important for us to ask, I think, we're going to get into kind of his threat here in a second, but it's important for us to ask, why, why would this happen? You know, for, for all intents and purposes, if we were to imagine a situation where someone comes in here with some serious idol worship, that we were not going to let that stand, right? Someone's going to talk to them. We're going to figure it out. But why would that happen? I think this is important because right now we, we are facing... I think our own version of what's happening with the Nicolaitans in the church. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear to see. I'm sure you've seen stuff with the Methodist church, you know, with all these churches, right? All these things going on, right? It's, it's very easy to give sway to the cultural pressure to begin to become more and more syncretistic to what's going on in the world, right? And so we've got to ask the question, uh, we are facing many situations right now where, where we'd be tempted to bring in the ideology of the world to avoid conflict, right? So you've got to ask the question, why? Why are they letting this to happen? Maybe it's out of love. That's an interesting question, right? Um, maybe it's out of love. Maybe they're saying, well, we just love them. We don't want them to feel so offended and leave, right? We want them to be a part of our church. We want them to know Christ. And, you know, if we tell them not to do this, then, then, then maybe it's going to be considered unloving. Maybe they're not going to want to stay here. Then they won't hear the gospel. If they don't hear the gospel, then, oh, my goodness, you know, they might not believe in Jesus. And you see how the ideology uh, kind of unravels itself. But 
love at the expense of the gospel is not love, okay? Love at the expense of the gospel is not love. We love people through the gospel, not around it, okay? We don't love people around the gospel long enough to where maybe we can push them into it, okay? We love people through the gospel. This is so important. Uh, True love cannot be based on on lies. It has to be based on the truth, right? And so so we can't say, oh, oh, no, we just want to include people because we want them to be loved, right? We can't just accept all lifestyles and all sin patterns just because we want them to be loved. It doesn't make any sense. We love people not at expense of the gospel, but true love is always in the gospel, okay? It's always in that. And so people are going to be offended by the gospel, okay? We have to get this in our mind, okay? People are going to be offended by us. They're going to be offended by the gospel. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, right? Have you ever thought about that statement from Christ? He said, I did not come to bring peace, which sounds anti-gospel, right? But he's saying that the gospel, yes, it is going to bring peace to those who hear it and believe it. Yes, and amen. But he goes on to say in Matthew 10 that like uh, a brother is going to be turned against another brother, uh, a mother-in-law against a mother-in-law, a household is going to be kind of ripped apart basically by the gospel because it's an offensive message, right? It's not all inclusive in that way. Yes, it goes out to anyone who would believe, but, but there are some implications into receiving it and what that means to really believe the gospel. And so um, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, um, pardon for the old English, um, it's a long story how I got this quote, but anyways, it's from his morning and evening devotionals, November 10th, the evening, it says this, um, if we were more like Christ, we should be more hated by his enemies. It were a sad dishonor to a child of God to be the world's favorite. It is a very ill omen to hear a wicked world clap its hands and shout well done to the Christian man. He may begin to look to his character and wonder whether he has not been doing wrong when the unrighteous give him their approbation. Let us be true to our master and have no friendship with a blind and base world which scorns and rejects him. Far be it from us to seek a crown of honor where our Lord found a crown of thorns. I love that quote. It's such a good reminder for us, okay? We did not believe the gospel so that we would be liked. We believe the gospel because there's no other answer. (laughs) There's no other way but to cling to Christ, amen? So look, we're gonna be hated. This is gonna create some turmoil. This is gonna create some awkward and sticky situations. But if you're gonna choose our enemies here, I'd rather be opposing the world, not Christ himself, amen? And so no matter what the excuse is here at Pergamum, uh, Christ is saying, you can't put up with this, right? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So the Lord in his grace, he tells the church at Pergamum to repent. The repent means to turn away from the sinful practice in truthful obedience to Christ and to follow his commands. And there's a clear um, inward necessity of godly grief, and trust in Christ's righteousness when you repent, but there's also an outward action. Christ is saying, you gotta change what you're doing. If you don't change it, I'm coming very soon, right? And we'll get into that in in one second here. But the point is this, we're not necessarily called to be uh, angry at the world in in a sense where where we're kind of, you know, picketing funerals like we see some churches do and all these uh, interesting things that maybe could be applied here. But, but, but what it is, is that we're not called to stand for un- unrighteousness within the church. We must call it out, okay? And if we don't, we gotta repent. Now, let's look at Jesus. So the, the third 
kind of questions, what does Christ promise the church? And he promises a few things here. One's kind of somewhat in the form of a threat, and the other is some awesome eternal promises that we're going to get to. So we're kind of nearing our end here. We're doing great on timing. So, um, okay, so let's look at this. He says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to come to you soon. And I'm going to war against you. Okay, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to come to you soon and I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus threatens to come soon and war against the disobedient people who cling to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. He promises to come and handle things on his own. Jesus will not tolerate what is going on here at the church of Bergamo and he threatens to come and eradicate with the sword the disease that was allowed within the church. And for the church, this will be much more painful and shameful. And so I think about it like this. Imagine you got a diseased arm and it needs to be amputated, right? Um, Jesus is saying, I'm going to come cut off the arm, okay? He's not saying he's going to destroy the church completely. He's not saying that, you know, because they messed up, that's it. He's done with them. He's just going to get rid of them forever. But what he is saying is if you don't repent, I'm going to come soon. If this is not handled, I'm going to come. And you're not going to like when I come, okay? Uh, If Jesus comes to handle business, it's going to be a painful thing for the church. But he's willing to do it because he loves his church, right? Jesus is going to have a spotless bride, (laughs) on the day he returns and he will do anything and everything to make sure that happens. So Jesus says, I'm coming and I will handle things and it will be an intense scenario. So I think some practical application and then we'll read his other promise. Here's some practical application for us about this. So you're saying, okay, I, I get what Jesus is saying. He's calling us to be holy, but like, what, what are some practical applications for us as a church? Here's a few things. One, um, we need to take holiness seriously, Okay. When we need to take holiness seriously, we should be a people that are set apart. Our, our desire should be, more, should be to be more and more and more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our, our questions are not how much of the world can we have without being sinful, but rather protecting at all costs our sinful tendencies that long to cling to love for the world and saying no. Christ and his righteousness alone. Christ and his righteousness alone. Okay, we are in a bad situation when we are asking the question, what can I get away with and not, how can I have more of Christ? Okay, this is our mentality. So in our own lives and in the lives of our home group and in the lives of our community and our church, we should say, how can I promote holiness? How can we long for holiness together? How can we long to be like Christ more? How can we be obedient? Like my home group, we, we talked about this last, last week, but how can we be obedient to the call in Hebrews, which says you should consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like how can we do that together? I think it's a practical application. Second, Remember that tolerating sinfulness is not love, okay? Tolerating sinful behavior because we don't want to offend someone, that is not true love. That is not Christian love. That is not the love that wins people over to the gospel. Look at me. The gospel is the power, not your ability, okay? Like, I, I'm not judging you on how you evangelize and how you deal. I get it. I have some people that are very close to me, a part of my family that could not think less of Christ, and it is such a temptation to say, well, how, how do I avoid this conversation? Or, or how, how do I kind of get into life so eventually they might see my life and, and love Christ? And, and the truth is that we, we, we have to, well, yeah, we, maybe we tolerate the person in a sense, but we cannot tolerate the sin. 
What we have to, through the gospel is the power unto salvation. It's through the gospel. It's not through your tactfulness. It's not through your wit. It's through the gospel. And so we get the gospel known. And even if that alienates us from people, we say, Lord, use it. By the power of your spirit, use your good news to reach your people because that's what the Lord does. And then lastly, uh, we should make a practice of calling out sin and mercy, okay? Now I get this from Jude, okay? So Jude, verse 20 through 23 says this. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I love the words of Jude here. He gives a beautiful picture on what it looks like to call out sin, okay? Now, I get it. Look, no one wants to be a part of the home group that you feel like, you know, you can't even wear a Metallica t-shirt in or you're gonna get called out and be like the sinful person, okay? Like, I get it here, okay? I'm not, I'm not promoting a self-righteousness that leads to alienation, okay? But I, I love Jude. Jude basically says, look, first of all, you, beloved children, wait upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, okay? So bathe yourself in the gospel, bathe yourself in the mercy and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you see others sinning, call to them in mercy. Some won't heed the call. And so you gotta grab them by the shirt and literally snatch them out of the fire before it is too late. And and to others with fear, be merciful to them, okay? And so, uh, and, and then he basically says that we should even hate the garment stained by flesh. So he's doing a few things here. One, he's telling you to be careful l- lest you go to help somebody and fall into the same snare that they are in, right? It's like kind of being caught in a bear trap and you go to help someone and then you get stuck in the bear trap as well. Like it's, that's not gonna be helpful for anyone. Uh, but, but also he's giving us this, this kind of gut flinch to come in mercy to those who are sinning, but we're still coming, okay? We're still in fear calling them, snatching them out of the fire. Remember, thriving for holiness is a community project. And so Providence, may we do that together. May the Lord never say of us, I have this against you, that you have some among you who hold to these false teachings and they are unopposed. They are embraced as part of your community. We should not be that way. We should be on the alert. We should be striving for holiness and we should be encouraging one another in the mercy of God to do this more and more as we see the day drawing near, amen? That's what we do as the church. So lastly, and we'll close with this. Verses uh, 16 and 17. Actually, verses verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus does at the end of each of these letters, and I love it. He says, okay, to the one who conquers, to the one who's faithful, okay, to the one who at the bottom of their heart desires to be holy, to be with Christ, here's what Christ says. If we have ears to hear, if we repent, if we conquer, if we're faithful, he says, I will give you the hidden manna. Now remember, manna in the Old Testament, right, was the food 
that God provided for his people in the wilderness. He even asked them to take some and to save it in the ark of God because it was gonna be a remembrance for them that God has always provided for them, that God is the provider, that he is the sustainer. And then Jesus takes it a step further in the New Testament and says, I am the bread of life. I am the manna that fell from heaven. It is me. That's why he says, If anyone would come take part of me, he must eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Jesus is saying, I am the hidden manna, right? And so Jesus is saying to the one who conquers will have me, the greatest gift we could ever ask for, the greatest joy we could ever obtain. The hidden manna is Jesus Christ himself. The beautiful promise from the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb to come in forever and to feast upon the lamb of God, the manna, true manna, from heaven. And he says, I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on stone that no one knows except me and you. Now there's a lot of uh, thoughts about the white stone in ancient Israel. It was used for, or not Israel, but just in general um, in the culture that's being written. Uh, There were white stones that were used for jurors to give verdicts of guilty, not guilty. The white stone was innocent. The the black stone was guilty. Um, There were also like in the Grecian competitions, uh, you'd be given a white stone if you won certain competitions to be invited into the banquet that they would have or to be invited into banquets in general. I I first kind of lean towards that thought on it because I think it's really awesome that Christ is talking about himself being the hidden man and then us being invited in uh, to the banquet. But, But nonetheless, the point is that the white stone is an invitation that we've been counted worthy through the righteousness of Christ to enter into his rest forever. Amen. It's the invitation into the kingdom and those who conquer, those who are faithful to the end, those who will not risk the fleeting pleasures of Pergamum to lose the gospel, those who are faithful to the end will receive a white stone and on it is a new name. I love that. This represents our adoption. This represents the newness of life we have in Christ and no one knows it. There's this intimacy, okay? No one knows it but you in Christ. What is this? It's an intimate calling to come unto Christ and have him forever. May we say like Moses or Hebrew said about Moses that he, he counted the reproach of Christ of greater value than the fleeting pleasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. Amen. And so Christ this morning is saying, look to the reward. Look to the one who has the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Look to the one who's the first and last, the great conqueror. And in him, we have eternal life. And so Jesus says, come. Let's pray together this morning. You guys can stand with me um, as we pray and take communion together. So if you could bow your heads with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these words of Christ that are so clearly displayed for us this morning. And Christ, it is with fear and expectation that we pray, let this not be said about us. Let us not be people or a church that is just fiddling in the things of the world, seeing how much we can grasp and take to heaven with us. Oh God, we don't want this world. We've been rescued from this world. We want you, the hidden manna. And so Jesus, may we believe in you this morning. May we repent this morning of our tendencies towards the things of this world. And may you give us great joy in you. Great joy in you, God, that lasts, that sustains Help us, Lord God, 
to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. May we find this to be our joy and passion when we come in to church on a Sunday morning or we go to our home groups or we're praying for the people in this congregation. May it be our passion to strive for holiness, not only in ourselves, but in everyone else, Lord. You're not coming back for a bunch of individuals. You're coming back for your bride, oh God. So Father, encourage us, help us, and sustain us, we pray. Let us have that hidden manna. We pray in Christ's name, amen.